Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. It's no secret that data and analytics can be used to create a competitive advantage for almost any modern business. In fact, the customer data you capture in the course of doing business is one of the strongest differentiators between you and the competition. So, how do we build an organization that is capable of both producing and consuming truly differentiating data products? It's not enough just to have a great analytics team that is capable of producing high-quality work. We also need an organization that is able to consume this output, however advanced it might be. Backed by popular demand, analytics executive and author of Building Analytics Teams, John Thompson is returning to Leaders of Analytics to talk about the future of analytics leadership. In this episode, we discuss where analytics teams should sit in the organizational structure, the typical mistakes businesses make when designing analytics teams and embedding them in the organization, how we plant the seed of advanced analytics and build a data-driven culture, how we select and prioritize the right data analytics projects to work on, the main purpose and remit of a chief data and analytics officer, what the perfect data-driven organization looks like, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's John. John K. Thompson, welcome back to Leaders of Analytics. It is such a pleasure to have you back. We spoke a few weeks ago and we had such a good time that we ran out of time and then we had many more questions to go through, a much longer conversation to complete. So we're back for more. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jonas. So glad to be here. And you're right. We had a great time the first time around and there were so many more things to talk about. And I'm glad we could find time in our shared calendars to, to get together. Yeah, absolutely. Listeners, you might hear that my voice is a bit different. I, I did say to John that in the Southern Hemisphere at the moment, it's it's winter and we have uh, lots of calls going around and I'm a lucky recipient of it. So uh, you'll be able to hear throughout the next few shows where, whether I recover or get worse. But other than that, John, let's get straight to the questions because last time we talked about types of skill sets and habits that analytics teams and the leaders should possess. Now it's time to talk about how we set those teams up for success. So let's talk about how we structure the overall organization to take advantage of the unique and differentiating potential that analytics can actually bring. So if we start with structure, where should analytics teams sit in the organizational structure or perhaps where should they not sit and why? Yeah, this is a very 
interesting topic and discussion. And I've had it now for years with people in Europe, Australia, the United States, Canada, all over the world, really. And, and it really comes down to the fact that the analytics team needs to be as close to the strategic decision makers as possible, and hopefully as close to the CEO and COO as possible. I've seen the analytics team in the IT department, and I think that's a bad idea. I've seen it in, in the CSO's organization in finance, and that's a bad idea for a whole different set of reasons. And then you've seen it in all sorts of different places, marketing and supply chain and, and things of that nature. And I do hear from people that, oh, I have an exceptional IT leader and they get data and analytics and we're going to put the analytics team there. And, you know, and I don't argue with people. I said, that's fine. If you have an exceptional leader and they know, you know, how to manage an analytics team and get the most out of it and, and focus on cross enterprise strategic orientation, then great. That should work. But what I see over and over and over again is that the IT department or the finance department or the marketing department has an agenda. Every organization has an agenda. Analytics really should have a cross-functional strategic agenda. And if you're working for IT, I can guarantee you, your analytics team is going to end up being bent to the will of the IT department. And when you sit and talk to IT staff members, they want to talk about servers and tools and vendors and outsourcing and things like that. They don't want to talk about data and, and strategic change and transformation, which is what the analytics team should be focused on. So where not to put it in the line of business functional areas, where to put it as close to the CEO and COO as you can. Very good. And uh, I have also seen all those things play out in my career. I really do concur with you that it can become not necessarily political because it's not out of uh, any sort of uh, political uh, malice or anything, but it's, um, it's human nature to be focused on your own little patch. That is what ensures, of course, that a lady gets pulled that way. And you do mention the exceptional leader. I think when you do have one of those, structure matters less in any organization because these leaders are so exceptional. I've also seen that. Unfortunately, they do leave and don't stick around. So once you have that happening, then uh, you're back to structure and uh, you can't get it wrong there. Why should it not sit in a finance department necessarily? Why are you against a finance department? Well, you know, finance is, is a wonderful function and, and the people in finance are numerate. They have to be. That's their job, numbers. But finance has a very interesting and prescribed cadence, especially in a public company. They have the monthly close, the quarterly close, they have the reporting to the street, whether that's the Australian market or the US markets or the European markets or all of them if you're a global company. So what happens is the finance people, you know, it's kind of like the fish in the water. What's water? They don't know that they're acting like this because that's just the way they act. You know, so you go in there and every project to them, it's the old metaphor of, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when you have a conversation, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, can it be done for the quarterly close? Well, probably not. They're asking for some really interesting and fun things to work on, but they usually span, you know, financial reporting periods. And the finance people, as you said earlier, Jonas, very well said, you know, everybody focuses on their patch. 
So if you have a strategic analytics team and they're working for the CFO, I can guarantee you 80 to 90% of their work is going to be financial analytics and trying to predict what's going to happen in the finance department. It's not going to be a cross-functional, strategic, transformational organization, which it can be. It's just human nature. Yes, I agree with you, John. I have tried for many years, but it's still not possible for me and my teams to make a machine learning model, deliver all the results by end of financial year. It typically spans a little bit over that. So again, agree. And, and what you're really saying is the analytics function should stand on its own and be its own function. That is an objective reviewer of the organization without the influence of any patch there. John, where do organizations typically make mistakes when it comes to designing first analytics teams, but also then embedding them in the organization? You know, in the in the book, Building Analytics Teams, uh, you know, it's probably the most quoted section of the book, maybe because of the subheading, I call it the original sin. And, you know, it, it's one of those things that when you talk to the CEO and the CFO and the COO, you know, they all look at it and say, oh, it's it's a, it's a technology function. You know, it, it deals with data and servers and computers. So it's it should go under IT or the finance person is really smart with numbers. So let's put it under them. It is a lack of understanding of what an analytics team really should be and could be and is. As we've talked about, an analytics team, just to say it explicitly, should be a cross-functional, data-driven innovation engine that drives the transformation of the business. And you're not going to get that from the CIO or the CFO or the supply chain head. You're only going to get that if it has a top-down mandate from the CEO or the COO. So that's the focus of what an analytics team should be doing. If you want strategic change and strategic improvement from your analytics team, you need to support them with an executive mandate. And that executive mandate has to be attached to every program and every project that you do. Yeah, and I think if you're related to an R&D department, then besides businesses that traditionally have an R&D department, like medical firms and so on, analytics teams are actually, for a lot of consumer businesses at least, the closest they get to research and development department in a sense. So this is where you experiment when you, with your business and figure out where the dynamics, profit and loss are, where you can experiment with your consumer and client experience and to see how you can actually improve those things through iterations a little bit like in a big medical firm you build your products like that you experiment you measure scientifically what happens you make this pill does it save the patient the yes or no it's the same sort of thing really and the techniques are also the same funnily enough so you wouldn't put your r&d department at johnson and johnson on the, the marketing department or the finance department you would make it stand alone. So this is similar to that in my world. So you're starting here to talk about, John, the executive presence of analytics as well, which is something we're going to get back to later because we're going to be talking about chief analytics officers, chief data officers, chief data and analytics officers. So I have lots of questions on that, but I might save them to a little bit later because before we get to that, it's of course not enough just to have a great analytics team that is capable of producing high quality work. We also need an organization that's capable of consuming all this output that we create, however advanced it might be. How do we plant that seed of advanced analytics and build a data-driven culture and organization? And perhaps you could give some examples of how you've approached this problem in your career. 
Yep. Great question, Jonas. And, and it's true. You know, we can do fabulous things with data and analytics. And, you know, if the organization is not ready to consume it or use it, or even in some cases believe it, then it's fun and it's interesting, but it's not going to drive business value. You're not going to have value realization. So in, in some cases, I talk about projects and programs. And, and people say, well, they're the same thing. And they're definitely not the same thing in my world. A project is you go in, you work with an executive or subject matter expert, you work on something for a week or a few days and you give them a number and that's a project and you're done. A program, you know, you're going to partner with them. They're going to partner with you. You're going to work on many different data sources. You're going to do all sorts of different trial and error on your models. And you're going to come up with something that has a strategic value to the business. You're going to change price. You're going to change your messaging. You're going to change how you do business on an ongoing basis. Now, if you're an analytics leader, you must understand this fact that if you go into an organization that is not data-driven and analytics-driven, you will probably have to do many years of projects before you get a chance to do a program because you're going to have to convince many different executives and many different managers and many different subject matter experts that you're doing work that is a high quality of enough level that you they can trust you, that you're going to change their business, that they can trust you to change their business. So, you know, in the job that I have right now, I'm just about to cross over my four year mark and we've done some programs, but I would say the great majority of things we've done in those past four years have been projects. And now we've gotten to a point where we have enough people through the organization from the top down to frontline managers where they're coming to us and saying, you know, you've been talking about projects and programs and now I get it. You know, I'm ready to partner with you and jump in and grab the oars with both hands and do an ongoing program where we're going to analytically change price. Where we're going to analytically change how we market. So it's not something that happens with one project. It's not something that happens with one conversation. This is something that happens over a year's duration and getting people to understand that they can trust you and your team and the data and the analytics that you're bringing to their business. So it's in some cases disheartening for people to hear that message, but I want you to, to understand that this is reality. That's how change happens in enterprise class corporations around the world. And I've seen this happen many different times where I've gone and talked to someone who's a manufacturing expert or the head of, of supply chain or the head of marketing. And we've done projects and I've explained the difference between a project and program. And, they, and they're very nice about it. They're like, look, I just want the number, please. So we do that. And then it happens somewhere between like three and six months. Usually the people will come back, that same person will come back and say, you know, can we have another conversation about programmatic, you know, an analytics program that helps us change and improve on a continuous basis? And I say, absolutely. And those conversations usually end up with us partnering and initiating a program that's going to make a difference for the business at a strategic level. So it's, it's one of those things that as an analytics leader, you have to have patience. Many of us do not, you know, I have a hard time being patient but you need to win them over with results and you need the word of mouth to permeate the organization. And then once you've gained that trust and they've had those conversations and they know that you're on their side and you're not gonna drop the ball, then you can start engaging in programs that really do the things that you yearn to do. So it's a really interesting concept, these projects versus programs. And I think it's, when I hear you talk about it, it's a very underutilized concept. How does that typically play out in practice in terms of 
where your team then gets deployed because necessarily a project is more ongoing and, and more continuous. And therefore the analytics team almost becomes an embedded team within the function that you're partnering with to some extent, at least around this program. And instead of some months, it might take a year or, or, or years, I'm guessing. How does that affect the way that the team works and the team members within that analytics team? It's sort of almost embedded resources at the end of it into your marketing team or, or what have you. It's true. And it does go that way in some cases. But we and my team work very hard to automate the back end, all the data feeds, all the data ingestion. We work really hard to make that stuff bulletproof so we don't have to keep turning the crank by hand. So, you know, once people say, hey, we like this, we really want this to happen, you know, we have automated the back end away. So we don't have to do anything there. Most of the time, you know, the data is accessed, ingested, integrated, run into the models and the models push the information out into the dashboards or the reports or the production systems or whatever it is. And it all happens behind the scenes. So, you know, often people do think the analytics is magic. And if it's done right, it kind of looks like magic, but it's not. It's just hard work. And then, you know, when the time comes, you know, we are monitoring the models and watching when they're going out of range of tolerance. And then we'll come back in and talk to the, the people and we'll say, hey, you know, we're going to update the models with the new data. And, and they don't really care. They trust us at that point. But what then happens beyond if you do all that good work, which is a lot of work and you need to do it then your team actually becomes a trusted consultant and embedded with the, the marketing department, the supply chain department, the pricing department. And they invite my team to their strategic reviews and, and their annual planning and all sorts of different things and ask us questions throughout the year. So we do end up being an adjunct to these departments. And I have you know, some people that are almost on full-time loan to different parts of our business all over the place. And I think really that typically is the ultimate measure of success that that happens. Um, I've seen in my career where my staff members have been, can I call it poached by other departments in the organization? And it, it kind of is the ultimate flattery, even though at the time it ruins our plans. It's very nice when people can be seen as high performers and having really delivered value that, that someone else actually would like to to offer them a role in their function. And I'm not saying that that's exactly what's happening here, but when we do get invited to strategic meetings and all that stuff, that's a really healthy sign that analytics is being used, think strategically. Thank you for that, John. I think that was really helpful. And I'm going to use myself this idea of projects versus programs. Now, a question that's connected to that, how do we select and prioritize the right projects or programs to work on in the first place? I have a lot of people come to me with this question and ask me on LinkedIn and different places, you know, how do I select the right projects? The answer is that the projects have pretty much already been selected. You know, organizations have strategies, they have, you know, goals and objectives they're working on towards their annual targets. And those are the things you should align with. You know, we last year had a real problem in pricing. And the management team was really tying themselves up in knots as they should. It was a, a real problem. So I raised our, my hand and said, hey, our team can help with this. You know, this is a strategic problem for us at the highest levels and we can help. So wherever there's pain in the organization is where you should be focused. 
you know, if your company has no problems, well, then good for you. That's great. But I've never heard of any companies that don't have any problems. It's not that you have to make things up or you have to invent problems or you have to find projects. The projects are out there. Just align yourself with some of the, the biggest challenges the organization is trying to solve. Yes, you attach yourself to these uh, sort of strategic challenges or strategic imperatives. One thing that I've also always found is oh, there's a need for you to train the organization to ask better questions. So typically when you start out, the questions are, well, they, they seem basic to me. So they're, they're often structured in a reporting format. Can I get the five years of uh, sales data for this part of the business? You can, but what, what do you need it for? I'd like to understand how pricing's affected my revenue. Okay, well, let's answer that question rather than give you five years of sales data. How does an analytics team go through that journey with the business? And what are the ways that we can mature the questions that are posed up front by stakeholders in the first place? That's a great point, you know, because many of our stakeholders are not data and analytics professionals and nor they should they be. And we're not asking them to understand, you know, different algorithmic techniques or data integration techniques. And, and if we're asking them to do that, then we're, we're asking them to do the wrong things. What we want them to do is to ask us questions. Just like you said, hey, can I get the five years of sales data? Well, then the real question is, why do you want that? And then they're like, well, I'm trying to understand, you know, what is the correlative or the causative factors that are causing our demand and our high frequency users to drop? And it's like, okay, great. Now we're getting somewhere. And then we take them to the next level. Would it be good if we could help you understand that and then build a model that actually predicted what was going to happen with your high frequency users in the next 12 to 18 months? And they're like, that not only would make me happy, it would be heavenly. Is that even possible? Now you've started a dialogue. You've whetted their appetite. You've taken them from a, hey, I want to look at a review of the last five years to we can actually predict what's going to happen next year. That dialogue alone will get you in the room for many, many, many more meetings. So it's not being someone who answers the first question that's asked. It's someone that then gently probes. What are you trying to get to? Just like you said, Jonas, you said it very well. What is the question you're trying to answer? Really tell me what you're trying to figure out. What I say to executives all the time is like, don't overthink it. If you have a problem and you think you need an answer, send me an email right away. Don't overthink it. Don't sand off the, the rough edges. The rough edges are where the fun part is for the analytics team. So I get questions all the time from people. Hey, can we do this? Can we do that? Or I need to understand this. That's where the fun comes in. Yeah, very interesting because there is this dynamic of, and we go back here to how do you select the right projects, this constant dynamic or tension of selecting the most valuable use cases. Therefore, we may need to almost business case up. What is it worth and why is that? And that means holding those questions and really sharpening them, which takes time. And typically we start with a very basic question, but we still want the stakeholder to ask that question so we can see it, right? It's there's the smoke that comes before the volcanic uh, eruption, if you can uh, use that analogy. I just made that up on the fly. It's not the best analogy I could, <laughs> I could come up with, but that's actually really tricky. And that I think that's what separates goods from average analytics teams is uh, if you're an average analytics team, that question comes in, you answer it. And uh, hey, here you go, we told you, versus a great analytics team that really starts digging into the, the essence of what's happening and what the stakeholder really wants to know. So John, when you go out in the business and source information, 
where do you do that in the organization? There's grassroots and there is executive management. How do you engage with the business? What are the, what's the processes you have for capturing these ideas so that they don't just happen sort of randomly or whoever is the most analytically adept, the one that always gets in front of the queue? Yeah, that's a great question, Jonas. And generally what I try to think of is I try to think in themes. We and our team use the concept of personal project portfolio. So our data scientists have, you know, questions that come in, you know, from the executives that have to be answered immediately. We call those service requests. We have short projects that, you know, may take a week or a month or two months or something like that. And we have major projects that may take two years to get done. So I try to put our team on themes. So we're working on things that have long-term value. We're associating different projects with different programs like one that we did, this so far sounds abstract, but let me make it a little bit more concrete. So we built a forecasting system that forecasts what's going to happen in all our U.S. centers, all 300 plus of them, how much volume is going to come through every one of those centers. We did that and it works really well. It forecasts every day for the next 18 months and it works great. So, you know, then we took it and we forecasted it at the hour level. Now, why would you do that? You wouldn't need to know that. That's It's overkill. But we had the computing power. We had the people. We had the models. We had the data. So we could do it. And we did it because the reason was that the next step in the theme was optimized scheduling driven by demand. So we took the scheduling system and we looked at all our employees and we did all these this analytics around optimal skills mix on the floor and then we built a labor scheduling system that is being tested right now. And it looks like it'll save us, you know, somewhere between 20 and $30 million a year. So what we took was just a simple forecasting system and we extended it to be a labor scheduling system. And we have a couple more steps to extend it further. So if you look at these projects in a thematic view, you can actually build upon them. And what you then end up with is the people in the business will fund your organization because they know what you're doing and they want you to keep doing it. And then you can actually go do some other work too. So it's it's one of those things that you end up getting people to work on a problem for a much longer time and it benefits the organization much more in a much more rich way. And I think what you're highlighting there is also a great example of this research and development nature of analytics, right? where you've actually You've built a product, an internal product, and you're building solutions on top of that. Again, all of a sudden, real value comes out when you've layered all these things. So great example. John, big question before we get to analytics leadership uh, specifically. So it's easy to ask, hard to answer. If you were to design the perfect data-driven organization, what would it look like and why? Well, we have some really intriguing examples of that. Procter & Gamble, the global CPG company, consumer packaged goods company, was probably the first data-driven organization that ever was. They looked at it from a consumer research perspective, a pricing, promotion, place, all the four Ps in marketing. You know, they were the, and probably still are to some extent, a hugely data-driven organization. Amazon, you know, looks a lot like a data-driven organization should be. So if, if someone said you had to pick an organization and, and they were going to be the model for a data-driven organization, I'd probably pick Netflix. 
And what are the hallmarks of Netflix's structure and behavior that you see that you would want to pull out specifically? Well, the whole organization is imbued with a view of data and analytics. Everything they do is data-driven and analytically driven. They're constantly testing, A-B testing, all sorts of different mixes and problems and ideas. The executive team listens to ideas from people not only below them, but multiple levels below them. It's one of those organizations that is saturated with data and it's populated with people who understand data and analytics. And the people at the top get it. That's part of the big problem that we see in these large organizations that have been around for hundreds of years is that you probably get up to one or two or three levels at the top. And the people below those levels get data and analytics, but the people above those levels don't even understand it anyway at all. So, you know, you're blocked from any true strategic change because the people at the top don't understand or want to understand data and analytics. That's not the case in any of the organizations that I just cited, Procter & Gamble, Amazon, or Netflix. And I think that's part of the biggest problem for organizations is that executives don't understand how to leverage and use and gain value from data and analytics. Couldn't agree more. The analogy that I've used many times in this show is 40 years ago, 30 years ago, we had lots of executives that had never used a computer. Maybe even the first CIOs had never used a computer. And you're just not going to get the same understanding and interaction with that if you haven't done that. Now everyone's computer native and there's no problem there at all. But they're even within what we call uh, yeah, maybe computers and internet and so on, there have been these evolutions where the executive necessarily had to be first computer native, then internet native, then social media native, et cetera, for those things to really start sticking in the organization and for the top-down sort of cultural aspect to really stick. And I think we're in the same situation here. We are typically in analytics in that very early period where the first CIOs were coming up and, and, and so on, early 90s. And speaking of that, John, we are now going to talk about uh, not CIOs, but chief analytics officers, chief data officers, etc. because we did promise that we were going to talk about the future of analytics leadership. And I put a number on it, but it's not really needed. But sort of in the last five years or so, we've seen an increasing number of these chief data and analytics officers ascend into C-suite positions. But in my opinion, it's still a challenge for most executive committees to understand what they do with these senior analytics leaders that are a little bit different and also their functions. Let's start with a definitional question. What should the main purpose and remit be of chief data and analytics officers? It's a great question. And I'm going to take it back a few steps before I go forward on the answers that if we look at organizations, you think about accounting, it's been with us for thousands of thousands of years, goes back to the Sumerians in 5000 BC. If you look at distribution and supply chain and price management, thousands and thousands of years, IT and technology and the use of computers has been around for 50. So when you look at organizations, there is a well understood culture around supply chain and accounting and manufacturing because they've been around for a long time. The thing around IT and technology, just a few decades. So it's not very well understood and there's not a whole lot of culture around it as there is with the other functions. Now, data and analytics, even less. We're talking a handful of years. So it's not surprising that these things are not well understood in the C-suite and at the board level as well. 
So with that as a contextual backdrop, let's go forward. So data and analytics from a chief data officer, the way I look at it, that's a defensive position. That's someone that's setting up the data architecture and the governance and how the data is going to flow and where it goes from SAP transactional systems into analytic environments or into reporting environments and ultimately into analytic environments. So chief data officers, in my opinion, is the first evolution in this role. And it's a defensive position. It's a foundational position. It really doesn't drive much change at all. Now, chief data officers are screaming around the world saying, hey, we make a difference and, and it's all good and you're, you're diminishing our value. I'm not diminishing your value, but it is a defensive kind of position. Chief analytics officers now, on the other hand, that's an offensive position. Those are the people that are going to take the data, they're going to integrate it together, they're going to do all the things that we were talking about and have been talking about in this conversation and the previous conversation. I see that as an offensive position. I see that as someone that comes in and makes a difference in the price model of the organization, the distribution model, the partners that they choose and work with. I see the chief analytics officer as someone who is an active, forward-looking, proactive change agent. Great. And... That concept of defensive and offensive is actually really important. Listeners, if you haven't heard of it before, I encourage you to Google that because it is a really helpful framework for you to use in your organization. I think Randy Bean and Tom Davenport originally came up with that from memory, John. So there's some good articles on that particular topic out there. So I encourage you to go and read up on that. Thank you for introducing that, John. So we now have an idea of what the role of the CDAO should be. And as I said before, it's a new role on the executive committee. People are trying to figure out what does it do. It's peers on the executive committee, but also the boss there, the CEO, is trying to figure out how do I use this person and their team in the right way. We've promoted them now. Well, hopefully they know that since they moved them into that part of the organization. However, there is always a challenge of creating a bit of staying power. So how do CDAOs create staying power and continue to earn their rights in the C-suite, John? It's a difficult concept, a CDAO. And I kind of see it in a historical context, like a vice president of sales and marketing. If you look at most of the people that have those roles, they're salespeople. You know, marketing is an afterthought for them. And I hear people screaming that about that too, but that's generally the way I've seen it is that if you're a VP of sales and marketing, you're selling and marketing is an afterthought. Same with the CDAO. And this is an evolutionary period we're in, and this is a, a function of the time we're in. If you're a CDAO right now, you're generally a chief data officer. You know, you're focused on the, the infrastructure and the governance and the servers and making sure no one's stealing your data. You're really not doing any AO work. You're not doing any proactive analytics work. And that's just the, the nature of where we are in the evolution of the function. So I'm not a fan of the VP of sales and marketing title. I'm not a fan of the CDAO. You know, at this point, if you're a chief data officer, then your title should be CDO. A CDAO, you know, the A is, is usually not very well addressed at this point, and you probably should take that off the table until you're either ready to focus on that. If you've got the data in place and the architecture working enough, you can do the analytics, then sure, you have the CDAO title and you've earned it. Or you can have a CDO and a CAO. Either way works. But at this point in time, I think the CDAO is a poor title to give someone. I think you've partly answered my next question, which was going to be, should we have a chief analytics officer, a chief data and analytics officer? Should we have the two roles split, basically, or in one? 
And I'm hearing you say split. I will tell you, I'm very glad you're saying that because I think it is easy to understand why it's seen as a continuous skill set. But in my opinion, it's a very different skill set. Yes. The people that are chief data officers are not very good chief analytics officers and vice versa. It are two different skill sets. Now, we can see for all the reasons that we've had in this conversation why people could say, hey, it's data and analytics. They go together like peanut butter and jelly. Not so. No, and I am one of those people who would not make a very good chief data officer, I can tell you, but I would very happily take on the chief analytics officer role because I see that as my wheelhouse, of course, but it's also you use terminology of offensive and defensive. Another lens to it is a business function, which is the analytics function versus a, I have to be careful here what I say, but it's more akin to a technology function, which is the data function, right? which is the getting the data in the right format and so on. And I'm lucky in my organization, that's exactly what we've done. We have taken the data function and put it in the IT department, and we sit much closer to the business. That's the way it actually should be, in my opinion. And I'm very happy to continue to have that split. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. Okay, so we've established now what kind of roles we should have. We should have two of them. Now, here is the contentious question, John. Should both of these roles ascend to the C-suite or only one of them? You answered the question earlier, and I'll just clarify and extend what you already said. The chief data officer is not a chief data officer. They could be the VP of data architecture, a director of data architecture, whatever. No, they should not be a C-level function. And it can go in the IT department and be very effective there. The chief analytics officer is a C-level function, and it should be in the C-suite. So, you know, you need the data and you have to be able to access it and use it, but that's not a strategic function. Great. So we all agree here. That's good. <laughs> now, John, we talked a little bit about it, but it seems like there's sort of still a little bit of a glass ceiling for us data analytics leaders to break through. What will it take for us to break through this ceiling in any sort of typical organization? I know it's a very broad brush and it can depend on the organization and so on. But what does it really require of us? That's really the essence. What are the habits, behavior, skill sets that we must present to the business for that glass ceiling to be broken? And what does it require of those organizations that we work in for that to happen? You know, typically it comes down to a few different things. Desire, you have to want to do it because there's a lot of people that want to be in the C-suite. So you, you number one, you have to really want to do it. Number two, you have to focus on business value. And we've talked about this before, all our projects, all the projects I do are denominated in the, the dollars of the people that are making the decision. Where in the United States, it's denominated in dollars, in Australia, Australian dollars, and in Japan, yen, all across the European Union, euros, and in the UK, pounds. So you have to really think as a business person, why would we do this? If you don't have that lens and you don't have the desire, then you don't deserve to be at the C-suite. Another thing that, that has to happen, and this is really a message that most people don't want to hear, is that time, time has to evolve. There's a variety of people in the CEO level, the COO level, 
that are in their late 60s and 70s. Those people have to go away. There was an article written recently, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was a very, very popular person that said, look, you know, boomers, you gotta go. And I agree, you know, it's time for those people to retire. And until that group of people leaves the C-suite, you're not gonna see people from a data and analytics lineage ascending to those positions of power. Yep, so we gotta have some patience as well. That's good. I think you covered lots of good stuff in there, John. So it's it's in summary, a lot to ourselves, but only partly. And uh, there is a lot of luck involved. And we can say that the organizations are structured logically and it's all been done objectively, but it's been done by humans. So there is the desire for people to stick around and there's the desire for people to look at their own patch and take care of that and so on. So all of this matters a lot. And I think there's also a very simple thing that people overlook is that for new roles to report to a CEO, oftentimes something else has to go or leave because they don't want 50 functions reporting to them. They might want seven or eight, typically. It's probably sort of where the middle of the bell curve is. It has a very uh, steep decline in the bell curve. It's probably somewhere between five and 10, really, typically. And anything else than that, it's unrealistic. So if there's already 10 on there, uh, good luck, uh, unfortunately. Now, you've already mentioned it, but we see other executive functions also going through these sort of teething issues with the, do we belong in the C-suite and what, how should we be structured and so on. And one of the fixes that we see is to combine more than one function under one executive. So we see these functions coming up like chief customer officers, chief experience officers, chief digital officers, chief marketing and sales officers, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any appropriate combinations of chief analytics officer and something else? So analytics and strategy or analytics and digital experience or anything like that? Or should it be just its, its own function? It's a good question. And there are certainly a proliferation of very fancy titles out there. Uh, many of them are just come down to sales, marketing, operations, manufacturing, but the the new label laid on it. You know, my view of analytics, and and we've talked about this a little bit, is that it is a data-driven innovation function. So, you know, you can put user experience in there, you can put customer experience in there, you can put digital transformation in there. So the analytics function really should be a digital innovation function focused on driving transformation. So, you know, all these, these people that go out and do digital transformation from a process perspective, No disrespect meant, but I think that's why we see two-thirds of digital transformation projects fail. You really need to understand what's driving the business, and you need to do it on a routine and regular basis. So if your organization can understand and ingest innovation and understand the output from data and analytics, you will transform. And you will do it organically and you don't need these $500 million albatross projects that fail at monstrous rates. The analytics function really should be an innovation-driven transformation function. I think a lot of people listening to this will have seen some of these million-dollar transformation projects and two-thirds failing is probably also (laughs) about the right statistic. So John, looking at that, if you pick your your generic transformation program that's about to fail, how could analytics sort of help save that or how could we have done it differently? 
I'm not sure analytics can save those projects. You know, if they're, you know, well down the road, then, you know, they're going to have to crash on the rocks on their own. But the different approach is going at it and understanding the business, what's happening in the business today. I've had many conversations over the last four years with people that are like, they talk about tribal knowledge or they talk about how the business operates. When you really look at the data that shows how the business operates and how people interact with it, not only donors and patients and partners, they operate dramatically different. We, we just went through a huge pandemic. You know, that has changed the way the business operates and businesses that have been around for five decades or 10 decades, you know, they evolve. So this tribal knowledge gets out of date fairly quickly, especially in the cycles we see now. So I wouldn't use data and analytics to fix these programs. I would shut them down and try to save as much money as possible. And I would turn to data and analytics to understand what is true, what is happening in the business, and what are the insights that we can gain so we can change the business so it operates more efficiently and effectively. Very clear. So it's really about analytics measuring up front and helping to understand where where should we embed these tr transformational initiatives rather than big bang, we think we know it all up front kind of programs. Now, John, before we finish up, I have one important topic that I want to cover with you because the other day you were talking about having a job versus having a career. And I thought it was a really astute and interesting observation that you made around this. Could you share your views on having a job versus having a career and what that means for all of us? Sure. Thanks, Jonas. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. I have always been just absolutely focused on data and analytics for the last 37 years. It's my passion. It's what I love to do. It's what I want to do. And I've observed that other people come into the, the working world and they just want a job. They'll do anything you ask them to do, you know, and they're happy about it. You know, and a lot of these people are in the IT organization, stand up this server, administer this database, go over and work on network security. That's a job, in my opinion, going and doing different things. And those can be very fulfilling. I'm not against people having a job. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that if you have a career, you have a focus, you have a passion, you have a desire to do things. And when you have people who have jobs trying to manage people who have careers, you're going to have a natural mismatch because the people who have jobs see no issue with asking you to do something that has no relevance to what you were hired to do. You know, like sometimes they'll say, oh, we want you to go build this website. Why would you have me building a website? It makes no sense. You know, it's a difference between just doing what you need to do to get a paycheck and doing what you love to do. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. So talk to us about this scenario of the manager who is in a job and the employee that's in a career. So the employee there, what should they do when they're in that situation and, and how might it affect their so-called career when the manager is in that situation? Other than what you've just described, of course. Yeah. I, well, I'll maintain that, you know, if you have a manager who has a job and you have a career, your, your career is about ready to be disrupted. So it, it's just dangerous because these people will not take your best interest in mind. You know, their best interest trumps all. So whenever they see the wind blowing in a different direction, that's where they're going. So those people are dangerous from my perspective in a management realm. So if you're in that situation, what I would suggest you do is look around the organization for someone who has a passion that aligns with yours. Find someone else in the organization that has a view for data and analytics 
and start building a relationship with them and, and hopefully move over to work with them. And then, or you could just sit it out, you know, because people who have a job will move and there's a lot of fluidity in the job market and they'll go wherever they think they can make the most money. So either find a place to go in the organization or find a place to go outside the organization or just wait them out. Those are the paths that I see. Very sage advice, John. And I think this is a great place to round off the podcast because that's something we can all go in and ponder at. I will hazard the guess that if someone is listening to this sort of podcast, they're probably more in a career than a job and they need to think about what that means for them, but also what it means for them when they hire people into managerial roles and, and what they want to create underneath that manager. Thank you for that. John K. Thompson, thank you again for being on Analytics, not once, but twice. It was an absolute pleasure to do this again. And I know you're writing a new book, so maybe there'll be a third time when you have that ready and you want to present that to the world. We are very happy to have you back on here. It's always a pleasure. For now, enjoy your day and thank you for your contribution. Thanks, Jonas. We'll talk again soon.